We are happy to present this episode to you ad-free, but we're also sad to present this episode to you ad-free because ads pay the bills, and I don't see you paying the bills, but you can pay the bills by directly supporting us via philosophyimprov.com slash support. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Bill Arnett, an improv impresario, curious about philosophy. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, a philosophy magnate, investing my time to learn improv. And our guest today, introduce yourself. I'm T. Nguyen. I'm a professor of philosophy. I'm the boring one on today's podcast. <laughs> or oh, you'll bring some gravitas. Gravitas for this heavy subject that uh, we've chosen. <laughs> so this is, uh, unlike most of our episodes, we did an hour ago, I emailed and I said, hey, we're going to do, T's book was on games. So we're going to do something that have to do with games, just so Bill could be ready. Because I think there might be games involved in improv. I think that there this are. is what I've heard. <laughs> in ways you might understand, and in other ways that may be very, very new. How exciting is that? <laughs> I want to understand. The format of the show, the typical format of the show, we'll see how much we want to deviate that from that, is Bill and I each come with a lesson we have in mind to teach the other person. We do not take turns. We do not reveal it right up front. This time, I felt like T has some heavy ammunition he has. So I will say in advance that, well, I have some thoughts about the general area that we're talking. I don't have a secret thing. There will be no buzzer that will sound when Bill says the magic words or anything like that. We've never done that before. Maybe we should do that. Anyway, but yeah, so let's maybe open up. T, can you kind of give us, why is this even a philosophy topic, games? Can you give us a little opening? And the name of the book. So a lot of people don't think this is a philosophy topic. Part of the reason I do is because one of the great books that influenced on me on this, Bernard Toots' book, The Grasshopper, ends with an argument that games are the meaning of life. Oh. And his argument is basically, imagine utopia where all our practical problems would be solved. What would we do? We don't need to do anything to feed ourselves or fix our bodies. The only thing to do to keep us from dying of boredom, the only thing there is to do is to play games. So if games are the only thing to do in utopia, they must be the purpose of life, which when I teach drives students nuts. People get like really excited and really angry like at the same time. My book is called Games Agency is Art, and it's an attempt to take Suits' theory, which is just a definition of games and a really short argument that games are the meaning of life, to give you a whole theory about the art form of games, what we're doing when we're designing games, what we're doing when we're playing games, and how they teach us something about the kinds of human beings we are and what we care about. That's fantastic. It reminds me of a book, uh, Eric Byrne, The Games People Play. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's in your... Suits actually talks about that. He's like, that's not the kind of game I'm talking about. That's a (laughs) metaphorical use of game, which I think is really important. I think it's really important that we mean something. I mean, what do you think we mean when we say like, you're gaming the system or like you're playing games with my heart. Like I think Suits thinks that's a metaphor and it's a really important metaphor. Mm -hmm. And part of the metaphor for me is like in games, one of the things you do is you aim all out at some purpose and you ignore the rest of the world. You like transform the world into like instruments for like your end of winning at chess. Certainly something like, well, like chess or a board game, there is no outside world. There's such firm boundaries. And certainly in our world, our you know everyday world, maybe that's what's so fun about board games is that we get to kind of simulate or make these kinds of decisions without having to worry about all that's around us and all the noise that's surrounding us. Ding, 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 ding. First bell. Yay, there we go. 
I want to know. There are probably some games that have an element of chaos theory in them. That if a Cheeto falls on the board, then it becomes a, a piece. That there have to be some. Uh, if if there a plane flies overhead, you know, drinking games are obviously a classic. Like if something happens that we're paying attention to, I guess any any amount of betting where you're sort of referring to an external. I guess you're bringing that external domain into the game if you do that, right? Actually, this is a question I want to have for the improv comedian. So I'm going to give you one of the first early theories of what games and play are, and then see if it tracks your experience. Sure. So this is Yon Huzunga, early book, Homo Ludens. So his theory was, you know, we think we're Homo sapiens, the thinking animal, but we're actually Homo Ludens, the playing animal. And what he thinks is, the special thing about games and play, which he says are a really similar thing, is that when you play, you play in a special sacred space, a separate space that he ended up calling the magic circle which is now this like big phrase. What he says is, when you cross over into the magic circle, everything changes. You take on different roles. What you do has different meanings. Sure. And those meanings don't transfer in and out of the game, right? Like, my friendship with you isn't supposed to transfer into the game, and the fact that I tried to, like, fuck you over in the game isn't supposed to transfer out. Some people thought what this meant was there was an impermeable membrane of meaning. Sure. Where like stuff outside the game didn't come in and stuff inside the game didn't come out. Of course, like people have questioned this. Say, first of all, like what you improvers think of that? Well, there, there is something certainly when you're on stage, you're not yourself. You are not the things your character says or not what you might say. But there is also this notion that you can't escape yourself and you can't escape who you are. And equally with that idea, that permission to be other people, that permission to say and do things you wouldn't do in, in actual life, there's also this notion of, of who you are on stage is who you are off stage. And generally, the kind of behaviors you might have on stage can be reflected by the kind of person you are off stage. If someone is, as an improviser, generous, not as the character necessarily being generous, but as a player playing generously or empathetically, even if they're a mean, horrible person, their character is mean and horrible, if the actor, the performer is being empathetic, then chances are they're that way off stage as well. So I think I do tend to agree with that. I have played a lot of board games and I have met people that knowing them in real life, I don't want to play board games with them. And I think crossing that barrier, we're going to bring a little bit of baggage with us, perhaps. And there are certainly people who, upon leaving that barrier, will bring grouchiness, grumbliness, unhappiness at losing. Perhaps that isn't focused on another player, but I'm not sure if that membrane is completely impermeable. I think no one actually thinks the membrane is impermeable. Great. And the question is, but something's going on, right? It's not totally impermeable, but also... Some weird thing is going on. Like, it would be weird for me to get mad at you for, like, checkmating me in a game of chess, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, there is this handshake agreement that we are playing a game, and in a game, certain things do apply, certain things don't apply. Certainly having children and moving from, like, Candyland to, you know, more complex games, Monopoly or, you know, Ticket to Ride or one of these more interesting board games. My children went through a phase of, like, if I don't absolutely destroy you, then I didn't have fun. And they quickly burn through that and realize that it's okay to lose if you played a competitive game. And they'll even, even if they are losing, they'll see it through to the end because they now enjoy, they're not old enough to enjoy gameplay. Here's another question for you, Improvers. There are people in this live action role playing space who talk about bleed, which is when yourself comes into the character or your character, what happens to your character leaves and enters 
you, the full player. The Tom Hanks Mazes and Monsters phenomenon. We're all familiar with that, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, what's that? That's an 80s movie where Tom Hanks played someone who was corrupted and driven insane by playing Dungeons and Dragons and wandered the streets of the city <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. killing people because he thought they were goblins or something. Anyway, go on. My question is, do you think there's more bleed in something as like humanly rich as improv? Sometimes I want to think like, oh yeah, but there's less bleed in like chess because chess is just such a well-defined activity. I don't know what it would be in a chess tournament to be a more or less generous chess player. Like what you're there to do is just play really hard. I wonder how different the context is. There are definitely actors and performers. You might have heard that they're very method. You may have heard that. And those are the kind of people who lose themselves in the roles and they're still wearing their character's shoes off stage and they're still talking in their character's voice at lunch. And that person certainly exists. In an improv context, it's not a one-to-one to the method actor, but there are definitely improvisers who it is a spiritual thing for them. And to play well, to win as an improviser is not to be the funniest person in the room, but to be the best, kindest hearted player in the room. I think there's lots of things around the rules and between the rules. I don't know if you've ever played any pickup basketball before. And in college, you know, a bunch of people show up at the court and we just kind of, well, you know, five on five and just kind of pick teams. There's always somebody, and I don't know the equivalent in chess, but I bet there is. But there's always somebody on the other team who was like, hey, hey, pass me the ball. Who's counting on the fact that this is a pickup game and these 10 people just randomly showed up at the court and they want the ball passed to them, even though they're on the other team. And ha ha, I tricked you. You don't know me. And you pass me the ball. Ha ha ha. And it's like, is that legal in pickup basketball? Or is that unsportsmanlike? And I think that the unscrupulous will always have an advantage. And every game probably has little uh, holes for the unscrupulous to be unscrupulous. You know, there's a whole literature in the philosophy of sports about this. You know, there's a field of the philosophy of sports. There's this whole question about where sportsmanship norms come from. And some people are like, oh, it's just going to vary from context to context, right? There's some context where people are just going to agree that there's an unspoken rule that you shouldn't do that kind of thing and other people. But other people think you can figure out what the sportsmanship norms should be by looking at the rules and looking for the greater purpose behind them. So you can reinterpret rules, change rules, or fill in blank spots by knowing what the game is for. And the place they get this idea is... The philosophy of law and arguments about how you're supposed to read the Constitution. So some people are literalists. They're like, all there is is the rules. And other people are like, no, no. Okay. You can look at the law and see what the real purpose was. And you can see, oh, the fact that this law says men instead of people, that's a miswriting of the true purpose. And so you can modify things. So a lot of people in the philosophy of sport think that the purpose of a sport like basketball is to develop and display physical excellence. And so that kind of trickery is against that true spirit. And so that's why good sportsmanship says don't do it. I get that. I mean, back to the law, it's impossible to write every conceivable situation and what the penalty is. And what I know some of like the old Hammurabi's code, that's just like, there's like a thousand things. It's like, we got to think of everything. If you steal somebody's cat, if you steal two of their cats, you steal three, you steal two of their cats and a dog. What's the penalty? And it's like, well, we got to go to the book. And it's like, it's impossible to write down every conceivable transgression and what the penalty should be. So I think the idea that people who read the rules or read the Constitution as literal, I think that is a useful excuse for them to break the rules. They see an opening, they see a hole, and that hole is not covered by the letter of the law, but it is open if you discount the spirit of the law. So they use that. I've met people, you know, I've bought enough used cars to know that like the people who, but the letter of the law are trying to screw you generally. 
This is maybe a little bit skew from just talking about games, but I think Mark especially might like this. One of my favorite philosophy papers from the last few decades is Annette Byers' paper, Trust and Antitrust. She talks about how weird it is that people in philosophy are trying to build an ethics based on writing everything down, based on contracts. She thinks that moral life actually starts in trusting each other. And a lot of trusting each other involves trusting each other about what can't be made explicit and what can't be written down. Because there's so much, exactly, her thought is exactly what you thought. There's so many possible things that could happen. We can never write down for all of them. So what we need to do is make her, like what trust is, is making yourself vulnerable to another person about all this shit that could happen that you can never predict. And then she says contracts. Contracts are a technology we invented for merchants who are like strangers who are going to have financial dealings with each other, who are afraid that they're going to screw each other over. And so needed to write down every single little exception and specify a fine because they couldn't trust anybody at all. And then she's like, hey, moral philosophers, you're trying to build morality on a metaphor of a contract where contracts were built specifically for a situation in which you couldn't trust anybody else. Well, I feel like this is a safe trusting space and we should put ourselves in Bill's hands to start us (laughs) on something less straightforwardly discursive for at least a few minutes here. (laughs) Well, there is a big concept in improv called the game of the scene. Now, this is distinct. This is, I mean, it's kind of funny. I had kind of had this on my list of two or three things to talk about. And then I got the email from Mark saying, you would be here talking about games. I'm like, oh, perfect. Now, if you've seen Whose Line Is It Anyway or seen any short form improv, there is something called the game in that context. All the players are going to speak in consecutive lines of the alphabet, letters of the alphabet. All the players are going to be animals and someone has to guess who they are. All the players are going to sing a song like Batman, you know, whatever. But there's a different kind of improv, which is more scenic, which is the kind Mark and I have been doing. Just Batman known for his distinctive singing style. I, I think that... Well, again, a- you, you could see that on <laughs> Whose Line Is It? And, and you can see that happening for sure, where it's going to be more scenic. And the game is not going to be declared, but it's going to be discovered between the three of us. Now, the idea is this. The most common game that happens in improv scenes, and also sketch comedy as well, is the frustration game. And the frustration game is, in this case, well, I'll just go ahead and make it simple. You two are going to drive me crazy and frustrate me. Now, again, frustration is not anger. They're similar but different. Frustration implies that the world doesn't have to be this way, but it is because of you. And if you just changed a little bit, the world wouldn't be this way. And so you need to get me to feel that way. Now, here's the thing. You could get me to feel that way immediately and very strongly, and you might scare me away. So that the goal for you two is to keep me on the keep the fish on the hook and to not make the scene just 20 seconds long. So here's what we did. Mark, I texted you, texted, emailed you two lists. One list is a list of behaviors. And these are all common human behaviors that we might have seen out in the wild. I know Mark and I have talked a little bit about I've got a real stick up my butt about thinking about characters as behaviors. And there's also a list of context. A context might be two neighbors and a behavior might be constantly needs to be reassured. And we can imagine a scene with a neighbor that constantly needs to be reassured. And you can imagine how that could be frustrating for the other neighbor if their other neighbor is constantly needs to be reassuring. Does that make some sense? I have these lists. I understand what is in the list. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the list. You will be selecting one from column A and one from column B, and you can message them. We're on a Zoom thing right now for our audience, and you can message them exclusively to T, 
and that is what you two will be. I won't know what it is. So certainly for the context, if it's neighbor, you're going to have to start the scene saying something that lets me know that we're neighbors. But that is going to be how you behave. Now, you will not be graded on how well you behave that thing. You'll be graded on your ability to frustrate me. Am I trying to frustrate your character or frustrate you, the player? I'll probably be playing a character very close to myself. Ultimately, the character, the character would be frustrated. You can frustrate me by not doing what I just asked. You can frustrate me, the person. But that's it. So I feel like Mark has selected one. You two seem to be... I've communicated it. I have Zoomed it. I made it a very crowded... We'll see how it goes. Yes. And again, for T's benefit, you don't need to be funny. Just be truthful to whatever that thing is that came across. Does that make sense? Yes. Perfect. Here it is. So uh, this is a faculty meeting, and I don't know if we should have the TA here. Do you think we should really have the whipping boy, Bill, here? Is, is that appropriate? That we are full professors, and he is merely, I guess it, it wouldn't hurt. I can leave. It's fine. I can. He doesn't want to leave. Like, deep down, he doesn't want to leave. You know, in fact, I think it might actually help us to have a, a more ignorant perspective in the room to, okay. to uh, you know, as we're discussing the important matters of our... What he really means to say is that we value you, but as a student. Well, a grad student, a doctoral candidate. <laughs> but yes, a, stu- a student, a student, you're right. A student who has a lot to learn and who is, uh, has been thinking a lot and listening and in the background long enough so that we should have... We really want to hear your voice. Yeah, he really wants to hear what you have to say. Let's dive in. This is, this is something I'm on a teaching track myself, so I'm probably going to be having these meetings with my TAs in, in a few years. And when you're with your TAs, then you will be encouraging them in a similar way that you're, we're encouraging you? Is that what, that what you're trying to say? I'm trying to hide your disappointment. I haven't said anything to be disappointed about. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to... Is this about... The next term? What, I don't even know the topic of the meeting. You're ready for the topic to be announced, and I'm, I think that maybe you should uh, start with us. We want to hear your ideas on how really the whole department should go forward. In general? In aggregate? Well, we've got a semester coming up. We want feedback. Um, Based on what you've observed so far, uh, what you would, uh, how, how you would change things. I mean, you asked. Mark's trying to say that we know that you're struggling and we're worried that it's us. I'm not struggling. I'm not. I'm really having a great time. Uh, You're having a great time, I'm, I'm, but you wish that you had more of a voice in the room, and so we are providing you with this forum today. But that's, that's not true. All right. I, if I had to say something, I would say that I think the intro. You think Mark's an asshole, don't you? No, I didn't say that. I didn't. I didn't say that. You didn't say that because you're very polite, and now that we're giving you an open forum, you really think that maybe T is the one who's been at fault for the stalls, for all the professors, other, other professors quitting, no, uh, I, all the, uh, the students that have been jailed over the past semester. I mean, I think that is clearly a result of the... That's below my pay grade. I did have some observations. Wait, you're, you're worried about your pay? No, no, I'm not worried. Is that what this is about? Not about my my pay. My pay is fine. I understand that I have certain student hours and that that covers my tuition. And I think that's great. That's why I chose to study here. You're upset about how much we're pushing you. That's what this is about. Right now. I'm upset right now that you called me to a meeting and then tell me I'm supposed to say what the meeting's about. And then you get to say what the meeting's about. And that's great. I'm glad you appreciate what's going on here. I have something. I actually have something I I think I should share. Please do. All right. I think the intro psychology course that we offer to the general student population, I think it's bullshit. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I think it could be a better class if rather than if we assume that the students. Oh, you want Mark to teach it, not me. 
Oh my God. Doctor, I didn't say that. What I was going to say is it's taught from a point of view that all these students might be into psychology. And I think we should make it a fun class. You think there should be more puppets is what you're saying. You think that the two puppets that we use for most of the class are not enough. You feel like there should be more diversity in the puppets. You feel like the puppets should uh, be more animated, that the puppets should should have more songs. No puppets. How about no puppets? And more, you know, what everybody loves is when we, anytime we show the videos about like the ex- experiments. You, you want to make the class to be sexier. You, you want to pander. No, I don't want to make it. Se- I, I, students enjoy all when we talk about the Stanford prison experiment, when we talk about the electrical shock box, the general population really loves those things of students. And I think we should lead with that. And then use that as a doorway to get into some more deeper psychological areas. Because, that, because you think that if we're, showing this prison experiment, then we'll have less students going to prison as a result of the curriculum. No, 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 not at all. I think it's a cool thing. You think it's cool that the use of puppets has sent people to prison? You think that that is what we're doing here? I don't think that's cool. All right. The general public enjoys those stories from the world of psychology more than they enjoy stories about the history of psychology, and we're going to learn about Freud for a month, then we're going to learn about why Freud was wrong for a month. You're saying that history is unimportant. I didn't say history is unimportant. I said history can be viewed from a lens is de- of, de- determined by the, the winners of history. Yes, no, I understand that. No, and no, we no. are clearly the winners of history, which is why we get to teach this. There's no problem with that. I'm totally in agreement with you. All right, look, I wrote down all my suggestions. I'm just going to give you this and I'm going to leave because this is, this is ridiculous. And I, I just, I got other things. I got papers to grade from that one-on-one class. So I, I, here it is. Here's everything written down. You can just tell Mark that you don't like him, by the way. We can make I don't, some no, text. I'm not going to know. I understand you have more important things to do. Please go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll assign your puppet to someone else. I have equally important things to do. All right. Thank you very much for your time, professors. And, um, Here's, and here's my list. fuck and you? Wait, is that that's what you're going to leave us with? No. Oh, come on no. now. All right. Yeah, we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. That was very, very nice. I think you probably guessed which of your things. Uh, <laughs> uh, professor, and maybe finishing thoughts? Finishing the of thoughts others? of others. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that was, now, that's a list I've got. I have it in my book. But regardless of what it is, it's not necessarily about the guessing. It's about you keeping me on the hook and keeping me from leaving. And you had a few moments that I really enjoyed that exhibited this kind of push-pull nature. An example of pushing me away might be, we want your opinion because it's an ignorant opinion. That pushes me away, yes? But what were some of the lines y'all said that pull me back in? I don't even remember at this point. I feel like we were just <laughs> assaulting you throughout. <laughs> uh, we value you. T had a moment that was like, we, you know, we really value your opinion. Even if it's the opinion of an ignorant person, we do value it. So there's that kind of push-pull nature that happens. And I think something that occurs with improvisers is that you suddenly realize the world, we're playing these kinds of games all over in every interaction that we have in the world, and we almost can't escape them. The one self-help book I read, and I feel like you either read zero self-help books, one self-help book, or all the self-help books. There's no one who just reads three or four. It was called When I Say No, I Feel Guilty from the 70s. It's about assertiveness. And it's this whole notion of like, everyone is trying to manipulate you in every interaction. So know that and know that everyone has some kind of goal. And if you're trying to return a pair of shoes at the store and the person checking on is like, sir, there's a line forming behind you. What they're trying to say is go away. I don't want to deal with you right now. 
but they can't say that. So they say, there's a line forming behind you. Well, that's not your problem. There's a line forming behind you. It's the store's problem for not having enough clerks. The book goes through all these things, again, through the notion of teaching people assertiveness. But once you start looking out for these things, you see that they're happening all around us. And you all being mean to me, sure, finishing thoughts was what the label was on you being mean. But the bind I'm in is, I want to graduate. You are have a position of power over me, and you're being mean to me. And that is a vice that I'm stuck inside. That's the game of the scene. That sounds like a terrible self-help book, just to so you know that it sounds like, <laughs> here, I read this book that says everyone's out to get you all the time. I'm really letting it poison my mind and so that I uh, can't cope with other human beings anymore. It is expressed in a very constructive fashion, <laughs> I'll say. What's the book going to get out of you? The book itself. It got your cash. Yeah. Including this book. Yes. Everything is manipulating you. Why'd you buy this book? Sucker. It's just page after page of the word sucker in 10-point type right in the middle of, of each page. Like, oh, Very instructive. Nuts. Very you instructive. Got me. You got me. <laughs> Could you feel while you're doing that, this notion of, I don't know, what was it like from your side? I guess I was trying to figure out, like, are we taking turns? We're supposed to be interrupting. <laughs> T was on top of it that he was continuing my thoughts Whereas I was more focusing on you, I don't know that I actually pounced on anything that T said. So I was kind of like trying to, as we do on a podcast anyway, sort of one of the games in here is like, <laughs> is everybody getting to talk? Am I saying enough? So that is amplified in a particular game scene where we're trying to figure out how not to be talking on top of each other and how to make things flow. Yeah. After this game, can I ask a philosophy question now of you all to help me solve one of my deep puzzles. Go ahead. I'll give you a little background, and then you can try to help me sort a huge variety of game life. And I think what we just played is a great example of the thing that I can't fully understand. But you're saying that Bill so, is an asshole? Is that... Oh, sorry. I thought we were, <laughs> I thought we were still doing that <laughs> no, game. I'm saying that you're an asshole. It's addictive. It's addictive, y'all. So Bernard Suits' definition of a game, the short version of the definition is to play a game is to voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles to make possible the activity of struggling to overcome them. That's the short version. The long version is, in a game, you take on what he calls a prelusory goal, which is some state of affairs. You try to hit it, but you try to hit it inside what he calls constitutive rules. So the prelusory goal is like, pass the ball through the hoop. The constitutive rules are, you do it with opponents, throwing it from the ground, following the dribbling rule, and that gives you the losery goal, which is making baskets. And the losery goal is the pre-losery goal, get the ball through the hoop, done under the constraints. And his idea is, what it is to make a basket, that isn't just some state of affairs. It's that state of affairs achieved inside a set of restrictions. And the interesting thing for him is that what we care about isn't the pre-losery goal, but the losery goal. Or to, like in less technical terms, if you're running a marathon and you're trying to get some point in space, you don't just care about getting to that point in space or you do it in the most efficient way possible. You would take a cab, right? Or a shortcut. Sure. When you're running a marathon, what you're trying to do is to get there under constraint, and it doesn't even count if you violated those constraints, right? So the idea is that the value has to be somehow tied up with those constraints. So for me, in my book, this is the basis for saying that there are two kinds of motivations for play. One is achievement play, and one is striving play. So achievement play is trying to win because winning the game is valuable. And striving play is temporarily getting interested in winning for the sake of the struggle, because what you want is the struggle itself. And one of my arguments that striving play is real, because weirdly, people in philosophy of sports doubt it. There's a category called stupid games. And a stupid game is a game where it's only fun when you fail, 
but it's only fun if you're actually trying to win, like Twister or a lot of drinking games. So you have to make yourself care about winning, even though what you want is to fail. So one way to put it is that in games, the goal and the purpose are different. And for the striving player, the purpose, their bigger purpose might be to have fun or to relax or see the beauty of chess. But the goal is to win this game, right? Or get to the finish line. And a lot of the times to get the true purpose, you actually have to forget about it and absorb yourself in this goal. Like for me, I'm a rock climber and I rock climb to relax because it's really hard for me to shut up the philosophy voice in my head. (laughs) But you can't, here's the interesting thing. So philosophers call this a self-effacing end. You can't relax by trying to relax. Like if you actually sit there like, relax, motherfucker, you you won't get it, right? So you have to aim at something else and just absorb yourself in this aim. Make sense so far? Yes. I'm wondering if you just named the episode Relax Motherfucker, but I don't think I can (laughs) put that in iTunes. We'll see. Well, you know, there's something to that. And it's this idea that you certainly hear something in music where it's like there is freedom in restriction. And this idea that this is the key of this song and we're going to stay in this key. And if you do any jazz improvising over this, there are some restrictions. And it's amazing. I mean, anyway, I can pick up an instrument I've never played and have it make random noise. But can that random noise have an order to it? That's amazing. And that's fascinating. You're going exactly where I want to go. So, okay. <laughs> so what, one of the interesting things, one of the debates I ended up having in the book is people who think that games are stupid because they have rules and that makes you less free. And me having to say, no, no, there are all kinds of ways in which restrictions can make you more free, right? So sometimes restrictions can like create new options, right? So a simple way to put it, if you're in an empty field, you have total freedom of movement. If you put up four rooms and a door... Your movement is restricted in a sense, but you actually have a richer option. You can be inside or outside. Suta's point is that games create new kinds of action. You can't have things like passes and dunks unless you have the restrictions of basketball. My character is restricted by, and again, I didn't tell you all this, but to get this game to work, the audience has to believe I am a typical TA at a college. If they don't believe that, it's like, well, you know, when my daddy bought the college, it's like, well, there go the stakes, really. Everything you say is now unimportant because it has no effect. There's no no place for it to land. I have to pretend that you all have my future in your hands. And because you have my future in your hands, I have to be careful to what I say. And now I've got to thread that needle and navigate around. And that is interesting. It's interesting watching a cruise liner try to make it through a narrow strait is far more interesting than a cruise liner sailing through the ocean where there's no danger of hitting anything. One thing that you're saying that seems really interesting to me is that in many ways in improv, you're adding restrictions on the fly and then trying to stay committed to them. Yes. And that's one reason why I marked it a fine job right up top. Okay, professors or TA, you know, just like laid it down, laid down. These are the rules of the game. And they're the rules that we all know because we all live in our lives. So we all understand how professors and TAs are supposed to behave. Those cultural rules that we've all been ingrained with since childhood. This scene may not work in another country that doesn't have those Professor TA rules. It does work here. Okay, now I can ask my question. There's one more more thing. So the book is really focused on things like board games and video games and sports. But I also play a lot of tabletop role-playing games, things like Dungeons & Dragons. And I'm not sure if you know this, but there's this whole indie world of people who did improv and played D&D and are creating these indie games that are very obviously built around the fusion of Dungeons & Dragons and theatrical improv. 
I had a whole chapter in my book about it and I cut it out because I was like, this is wrong. I don't know if this is the same thing. So I don't know if improv and role-playing games fit the Suitian definition of games. So Suits has this article. It's called Why a Sonnet is Not a Game. And he says, look, poets have these things called sonnets and a sonnet is a list of restrictions. And everyone knows that for artists, having restrictions spurs creativity. Even though this looks like a game, he doesn't think this is a game. And the reason is because a poet is trying to use the restrictions of a sonnet to get to a, something good, but with that thing that the goodness is independent of the restrictions. So a poet might get close to a great poem under the rules of a sonnet and realize, oh, if I broke the rules of a sonnet, I could have an even better one, right? So they have an understanding of their goal independent of the restrictions. The restrictions are just an aid, but they don't constitute the goal. But here's something you can't do. We playing a game of chess and be like, you know what? It would be a much better game of chess if we just broke some of the rules right now. That makes no sense. Chess has no existence or stability outside of the rules. And one thing I noticed when I played these improv ish role-playing games is that a lot of the times when we got close to a good story, we would throw away the rules of the game, and it still made sense. So the rules seemed like aids to the good story, but not constitutive of the good story. So I just don't know where role-playing games and improv sit in this space. And I just wanted to ask you all, since you're improvisers, like how close a relationship you have to those rules. Like, Can you throw away those rules mid-game and still have it be a thing that you're doing? Yes, is the short answer. Mark, do you have a short answer? So to clarify, I'm learning improv from Bill. I only have about, (laughs) as long as we've been recording this podcast, that's how much I know about improv. But to the overall thesis, I'm thinking that there probably is not just a strict division between ones where the rules matter enough that you can't break them and ones where you can, that it is really a continuum and that even for chess, chess has such a history and organization behind it But like any game, you know, if you're just playing with your kids or whatever, then you'll say, well, we're breaking the rules here. Then you're not really playing chess. But if you're playing with a board and you're still trying in some sense to win and the overall goal is to have fun or something, you know, it's a striving thing in the way that you're talking about, then it seems like any game, there's some flexibility. It's just that, you know, everybody's so used to chess, whereas like some games are sort of developed to have a level of bullshit in them. That we're stating up front that, yes, the point is to have fun. I think role-playing games, you know, I think there are some players that are, like, really tied to the rules. And it depends on who your game master is, how much they're going to let you get away with. Could you play a game, break a rule to have more fun, and have this conversation? Could you then go and rewrite the rules to incorporate the way you broke the game? Well, now you didn't break the rules. And uh, there might be something uh, teaching anyone how to improvise. There are these things called the improv rules. Don't say no. Don't ask questions. Avoid arguments. Da, 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 da. And then there's supposed to be this magical line you cross where it's okay to break the rules, but only because you know them. And I think that's a really lazy point of view. And it's not really true what's actually happening. I don't. And I've, I think Mark would agree. I've tried to go less as a rules-based improv teacher and more a heuristics Uh, more of a, what are the patterns we recognize in our own lives and how can we leverage those? And in that regard, perhaps this fusion of D&D and and improv, perhaps it is naive to say that, well, we can just play these together and accept the D&D rules whole cloth into this other new game that we are playing and expect them to just behave themselves and, and to work. And there's, you know, rules like don't cross the street. Really, you can't cross the street or you just need to be careful crossing the street. Happens in improv all the time. Don't say no. Is it the word no? 
Because I use no in life. Authors use the word no. Film writers use the word no. No happens all the time. So is it the word no? And there are some teachers who are like, well, it is. Just never say no. It's like, ah, you know, but it's not about no. There's something deeper under the rules. Just as you said, the, the rules imply a state of play, a state of mind when you're playing. And that disagreement is not that your character should disagree, but that one should be careful undermining the agreement we all have in this scene, in this moment. For me to say, my father bought this school and your employees and go get me some water bulges the reality that Mark set up quite aggressively. And he may be upset about that as a player. And did it break a rule? You know, I didn't say no. It's like, no, but it broke the etiquette that exists. And in that regard, we need to be cautious when we move into those places. So one thing you can do with games is you can change games in the middle of the game. And that involves like removing or adding a constraint or changing one of the constraints. But it still, to me, feels like a changing of the game if you know what the constraint systems are and if you slide from one to the other. The way you're describing improv seems a little different just because like, what counts as a win in chess? Like, I still have to know what the rules... I might have changed one of the rules, but I need to know what the rules are. Like, I can't figure that out without some explicit sense of the rules. Where the activity you're describing, it seems like all the rules are kind of like spiritual urgings aiming at this larger thing, and they're all kind of in play when you know what the larger thing is. They're all kind of like loose rules of thumb, right? What we're trying to achieve is something far more complex than a game of chess. Right. I mean, chess is kissing cousins of checkers. Let's just get that perfectly straight. And, <laughs> and, that's, oh! and that, is a, that is a broken game. And in fact, chess could become a broken game in the next decade or two. It sure ain't Go or, or any other game, a game with a, there is a winner and there is a loser or there is a draw. You know, not every game is even like that. So I think sometimes people put chess on this pedestal that doesn't need to be on. You know, I'm a Go player. I just, there we are. I always use chess because like, I'm tired of explaining Go (laughs) quickly what Go is out of context. It sounds like T that your thesis here is arguing that even though we might want to say that a player of a game is artistic like such a good chess player or more likely such a good athlete that it's like a work of art what you're doing. And maybe that is if you really define a game as like you have a strict set of rules and you can't break the rules, maybe there's something that there's something essential to art that you'd be able to break the rules because you have some sort of goal of creating this artwork beyond the existence of the rules. The rules are merely tools for an artist that can be broken and maybe for a game that's why it doesn't matter how long we play sorry none of us is going to be an artist of the sorry board there's just too much restrictions to allow that can we do another scene real fast i think might explore some of this stuff yes all right this is another frustration game but we're going to change it up sometimes i refer to this as the press conference although this won't be a press conference that's just kind of a an overarching title it's kind of like bechamel sauce if you're familiar it's a mother sauce and if you can make that you can make about an infinite number of sauces if you just know how to make that one mother sauce so the mother sauce is press conference but this particular flavor is going to be museum tour i'm going to be giving the two of you a museum tour and it's going to be your job to ask stupid questions you might imagine what that might be like now here's your restriction whoever asks the first stupid question The misunderstanding that drives that stupid question is all you're allowed to misunderstand. And again, if someone, if I'm talking about, I think the example I give a lot is Nike has got a new air cushion sole shoe and whoa, the shoe has a soul, you know, will it dies, where, where, where will its soul go? (laughs) You know, but I need all of the questions to confuse 
S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L. Again, it's not interesting just to have you guys go off on wild tangents. It's amazing to have you guys ask 15 questions in a row that differently confuse S-O-U-L and S-O-L-E. Where do you you get the souls from? Are they from aborted fetuses? What if my shoe has an evil soul? Will I kick people? You know, does that make sense? And it's like, that's amazing to see y'all do that. So whoever asked the first question, they're going to set the beat and we all have to dance to it. Is that cool? So sometimes it's funny to understand and pretend to understand, to lead me along as though you understand, only to then later not understand. Too many hints. Too many good examples. Trust me. (laughs) You're going to have a hard time pulling that one off. That's an advanced move, especially for the first time out. So I'll I'll go first here. Well, welcome, y'all. We've got a small little tour group today, but that's fine. Uh, We're over here in hangar number one. And this is our early aviation hangar. Well, we walking past, we've got a replica of the Wright Flyer. Some World War I aircraft as well as some dirigibles and blimps. We'll go ahead and start over here with the, with the Wright Flyer. This is a replica. Uh, yeah, question? So who bred these? Like, hmm? where, what did you cross to get these? I didn't know. Well, this is just, it's an airplane. It's the first airplane. It's not really crossed with anything. It's just the, the Wright, Wright brothers. Um, Dayton, Ohio, working in their workshop, watching birds. Today. I mean, is there, a spe- is there a special kind of farm? So the Wright, the Wright brothers, that's the farm that these came from? This was not grown. This was built just like a car or any, any physical device, any you know, piece of machinery. They used uh, wood and fabric over the wings, which was coated with a material called dope, which makes the fabric tighten. And as you can see, the bracing wires, the competitor of the Wrights was a uh, a man named Glenn Curtis, and he was accused of stealing some other ideas, but uh, he had his own ideas. And if there's any questions at all, feel free. It looks like they've got that canvas on like a skeleton. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it's a great way of thinking about it. Right. So, I mean, I, it's such a good idea. Like, bird bones are hollow, obviously. So, did you grow like a special kind of ostrich? It's not a bird. It's not. A, I, I, I can't. Uh, this didn't. I, I know it's not. A, I mean, but it wasn't born like this. Someone built it. Clearly, this is natural selection at work. This is not engineering. He's telling us this. This is if you're going to get a bird that can actually hold cargo in it. Like that's not something that, like they're going to be able to just come up with. That's got to be a long millions of years of evolution. That no, know, no, no, no. You, like you were this. right at the beginning. No one's just going to come up with that, but it's not millions of years of evolution. We have their drawings. They built a wind tunnel. We have all their notes. They built this with their two hands, with saws and, and, and wood. Yes, starting from the stroke of genius is to breed a special kind of ostrich to use the bones. I mean, I know you can't throw it for, Ostriches don't even fly. Ostriches don't even fly. They're flightless birds. Why would you breed a special kind of ostrich? I think what he was... That's ridiculous. I think, I think what our guide is saying is that there are different components. You mentioned the saws. So each of those has yes. to be, it's convergent. So each of those things evolved over long periods. And so it wasn't just the bird bones. It takes more than that. This is not an animal. It was never alive. It didn't come out of an egg. There, are, there were some gliders that existed before the Wright Flyer, but this is it. This is the first airplane. There was no other airplane. So you can grow animals in a lab now? Is that what you're saying? No. What? How? How was that even? How did? How was that even important? We have a long. We have a long tour. We have a long. Tour. We're still in our first hangar. We have a lot to go. I, I want to see the next one. Yeah. I, I really yeah. want to see the next yeah, one. Yeah. Show us something else. Well, I mentioned Glenn Curtis earlier. This is a replica of Glenn Curtis's June Bug. This was the plane that won the first ever air race in Paris, France. 
1913. That was an international air race in Paris. First ever air race and competitors. Man, his parents must have been so proud. I was going to say, I mean, like to have your kid do something like that, that, that inventor must have been you know, the, the, the uh, grower. Yeah, I imagine Mr. and Mrs. Curtis were happy for his son's uh, airplane that he built. No, I mean, the son being the parent. I, actually, I'm a little unclear how this works. If, if the parent. The, chi- the airplane is not a child. The airplane was not birthed. No, we know that. You said it was a bug. No, no, no. The, the, the name of the plane was Junebug. That's what he named it, but it's a, it's a machine. It's a mechanical machine. I mean, it is amazing how, like, it's like bodies are machines. It's like you got to feed them. It's, that's a really insightful analogy. Yeah. He may have been inspired by those. How is he going to build an airplane? Does this look like it came out of an animal? Does this look like it was an egg hatched and this thing came out? Yeah. And then it was a tiny one. It was a tiny little airplane. And then you, you feed it oil and gasoline and it grows into this. I mean, you're the one giving the tour. I don't know. You tell us. Yeah, I saw some of the little babies in the in your gift shop. Those were models. You can buy model kits. You buy the model kit, and it's 148 scale of the real thing. And you just put it in water, and it grows. D- don't put it in water. So you can get your own. You buy glue. One. You buy model cement. This isn't. This is not difficult stuff. This is going to be. Uh, you're not going to enjoy this tour. Can we agree? Mark, I, I think I know what's going on. I think this guy is an evolution denialist. Yeah, I come think he on. just didn't believe in the power of. I mean, creationism—that's what you're you're trying to sell us here. Look, I'm a retired aeronautical engineer. I believe in I believe in science. I believe in evolution. But evolution—I mean, all right. You know what? Technically, yes, designs might evolve. An engineer might look back at older designs and bring something forward that was a good idea. With grafting? Uh, no, but yeah. And then add their new ideas. But these are not biological in any regard. I mean, you got to thinking about those designs fucking to, to make what we're seeing in front of us. Okay, you know what? Tour's over. Ha ha ha. Tour's over. We did it. Yay. That was great. That was fun, you guys. It was. So again, y'all having that restriction of having to insist that this somehow these airplanes are some real creature, some real animal, got us to Mark's closing remark. Uh, we never would have got there. Airplanes having intercourse without going down that road. It was the road. designs. It was the blueprints. I would never talk about <laughs> airplanes themselves engaged in sexual activity. That's fun, easy. I saw people enjoying themselves. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so as a game... Would that have been better? I feel like there's kind of a rule involved there, but it was really not possible for us to, if the rule is we have to persist in the same misunderstanding, you know, we opened up a whole world of misunderstanding so that it was not a single misunderstanding about, like, because he just explicitly responded to it and we had to just ignore it. In order to keep playing the game, we had to violate the rule that he stated. Otherwise, it would have just been over. Yeah, It's your thinking of how to get around it. Well, no, no, no. The airplanes didn't have intercourse. The blueprints did. You know, it's your way of maintaining this dumb idea and navigating my roadblocks where the the really strong players earn their paycheck is creatively navigating the roadblocks I put in the way. I feel like there was a thing that was the true spiritual restriction and the first, oh, they're animals is just one stab at it. And we kept trying to hang on to something that we were like trying to make it continuous and make it be the same, but pushing to a greater level of abstraction as we like shifted between different sub understandings while tied to that thing. The reason, one of the reasons deeply I'm interested in games is because I'm interested in the, what restrictions are and what rules are and like why it matters so much. One of the things you see in game design all the time is here's an interesting thing 
I think that's maybe analogous. One of my favorite game designers in this indie role-playing space, who's very influenced by improv, is Vincent and McGay Baker, who made a game called Apocalypse World. And one of the things they say is, at a lot of critical junctures, to figure out what happens, you roll the dice. It says, like, you really want to honor whether the dice tell you whether you succeed or fail. Because one of the things a lot of people in the space have figured out is if you don't have dice and people have total freedom of the narrative, they just create cliches. They just regurgitate the most cliched thing possible. And what the dice do is they often force you like a moment where you would have thought the narrative should lead to success. The dice say, you fail badly. And then you have to invent what the bad failure is. Or you think this would be frustrating. The dice succeeds spectacularly and you have to narrate that out. That really juices the creativity. And it's weird because it juices the creativity by taking a certain degree of control out of your hands. And I feel like one of my experiences of this was it was hard to stay in the same misunderstanding. And if that restriction had been on me, I would have just said some other stupid thing. And, but the fact that we were forced to, like, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not the same as the dice, but it's, it makes me like stuck in a track I don't want to be in and forces me to come up with something clever in that track. I'll say that after a minute, I regretted my opening question. I was like, shit, that was way, that's way too, like, that is not going to go anywhere interesting. But we were stuck, and that led somewhere interesting. And believe it or not, it's my job to actually help you guys, because I, Bill the actor, wants to be frustrated, while Bill the character does not. So I'm going to, like, reinforce these things you said, repeat back to you what your misunderstanding is, to help butter, to help just keep your minds working and whatnot. And that's a great way of thinking about it as well. And I have to be frustrated. I can't dismiss what you said. It's like, no, 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 that's dumb. Moving on. No, 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 that's dumb. Moving on. It has to get under my skin. And this is, you know, 98% of sketch comedy. This is exactly what's going on. There's some misunderstanding that's driving things and it's making someone angry. So there are rules to the game that we are playing, this podcast being a game. <laughs> uh, and one of them is I'm looking at a clock and it says we got to wrap this up. Another one is there should be at least some period where we talk about which lesson won today. This is a weird thing because I didn't come in with lesson. We usually have the guest decide between the thing I came in with and, and the thing that Bill came in with. But since you came in with the thing, I don't think you should be judging your own thing. So I feel like I'm the one that has to okay. be the judge today. And, you know, does the philosophy lesson or the improv lesson, which one will have the most profound effect on the earth and on all of our lives, and which one are we going to go to sleep tonight thinking about? We're going to have to have another conversation on another podcast where we actually talk about games in a philosophy context. I know that's sort of what we were supposed to do today, but I'm not sure that the audience will have gotten why this is actually a topic in philosophy. It was interesting. There was some striving going on. Are we going to have to read some Dewey together? What would sort of get that over the line to make it clear for me and to the, to the world? You probably get this question all the time. It's hard for me to see it not as a part of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Since here are some traditional questions in philosophy. What is art? Why are we doing the activities we're doing? What is the purpose of these activities? Why do we do things together? Right? Why do we form ourselves together in communities and put ourselves under rules? And all of these questions, like, it's really hard for me not to see studying games as continuous with all those questions. I like that answer. Yeah, I was going to say, and when philosophers make, well, let's boil things down and make a, what's the word for it? When they take, like, look at the logic symbols out, you know, let's, let's make a... Abstract. If abstraction is a part of philosophy, well, isn't a game an abstraction? We're going to cut this thing out and we're just going to use these rules and look it under a microscope? It is certainly related to the process of philosophizing. I think 
as I knew coming in here, that these realms in this particular area, picking games as the part of philosophy, makes it kind of easier. We could have a whole podcast just going on this topic, and you know, it could be a series. Let me ask Bill a similar question. So I, I feel like your lesson was already out there on the surface, but do you want to elaborate? This idea of games and scenes, and it's a pattern that the actors discover. Now, both of these gamey scenes were very blunt. I mean, I literally was labeling what you guys would be doing, but they don't need to be that way. And Mark, you and I have had scenes that have had some game energy in them over our past episodes. And this idea that we find this pattern between us, we find this thing that we can kind of kick back and forth with each other, just as we did pretty aggressively in the two scenes today. But all that stuff can be found organically. And it's cool when you do. And believe it or not, you and your friends find those things too when you're just socializing. And maybe you find a a funny phrase or a catchphrase or an inside joke that gets repeated and mentioned and played with and toyed with. That's almost like a game inside your, your circle of friends. A fun way of thinking about it. Sometimes I think improv is an inside joke machine. It's hard to describe to people who weren't there that something was really funny. It's kind of a you had to be there kind of a situation. And when you are there and you do get to see it created on the spot, it's quite spectacular. It is an in-the-moment creation that has a value addition to what was created and those things together. TG, do you have any, any thoughts on the sort of what you learned about improv from doing this today? You know, I actually, I also wanted to offer you a third option about who won. And the third <laughs> option is, it turns out they were the same lesson. And I feel like what the lesson was, was something about the value of a restriction. In one case, the kinds of games I study, the restrictions come pre-established and improv, like we kind of come up with a restriction, but I feel like what I learned was another route into coming into encountering a restriction and the place of that particular restriction. But I feel like both of us were just really interested in how much you can get out of being stuck under a rule or a restriction or a constraint and why people like you might want to rebel against it, but how essential it is to getting to this weird place you're getting to. So I I like that, and I admit that Bill's lesson was very good today. However, I think that the lesson for listeners that games actually are a part of philosophy, that if you think aesthetics is, which it obviously is, according to all the the professors in the world, then, uh, you know, this is clearly part of that. I think that lesson itself, you know, this is like your historical contribution to the zeitgeist at this point. So I got to give the point to philosophy today. I'm sorry, Bill. Wow. Wow. No, that's fine. Thought we were friends. T is doing a nice dance. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way it rolls. All right. Well, thank you so much, T, for showing up here. You're a very good sport. Enjoyed learning from you, Mark, and enjoyed learning from you, T. I enjoyed learning from both of you. I enjoyed learning from you, T, when I went there to grad school. And I enjoyed learning from you, T Nguyen, and from Bill. And... Hey, thanks for listening. Not only did you get to hear this ad free, but I'm going to go ahead and include the post game segment. T stuck around. We talk more about games and improv and other things. There is a segment like this at the end of nearly every one of our episodes, but you can only hear that if you become a supporter. And with ads not appearing in our immediate future. We really, really are relying on your support in order to feel like this is worth continuing to record. So there are a couple options. You can go to philosophyimprov.com slash support to see them. If you support us via Patreon, it only takes a dollar per episode to get access to everything that we will be putting out. And you could even say a dollar maximum per month. It's not even necessarily a dollar per episode. 
And since it's charged on an episode-by-episode episode basis, if we don't put them out, then you don't pay anything. So even if you just want to go in and sign up for a month, let us know you enjoy the show in a financial way. That will be greatly heartening. And you can go immediately hear a lot of more things like what you're about to hear now. Here it is. All right, we're now entering the uh, the post-game. So, uh, yeah, what would you think of this as a uh, now having gone through this as is this something you would recommend to other professor types? In fact, will you recommend? We need more guests yes. in the pipeline. And, and like write their names down in emails and forward it to Mark. That would be great. If you're- <laughs> Definitely. I also think there's something, I mean, I feel like the improv lessons are incredibly valuable to people that want to learn how to teach. I've learned an enormous amount of teaching about teaching from the little bit of improv that's filtered through to me from this indie RPG world. And I feel like you're like, this is also a lesson in how to construct a social interaction. Yeah. There's a big schism in the improv world between long form and short form. Short form is what you see on whose lines anyway. And long form is more like you hear about the Christopher guest movies, you know, where the actors just show up and, and they have some restraints or what constraints and, and fill in the blanks or uh, back in the old days of UCB when that was still around and some other theaters that did not survive the pandemic do, do something called long form. And that's more of what we did, just more scenic kinds of things where the game is not declared to the audience. They do not know it before the scene starts, but we discover it and play it just as hard as if it had been told to the audience. Yeah. This is news but to the me. The rules that- of life, the rules of conversation, the rules that we all deal with in our social interactions are on display writ large. So I think that's probably going to what you're going for. This is news to me hey, that UCB is is dead. That, so that Upright Citizens Brigade, that that was... A- Upright Citizens Brigade, I, a big theater I've only heard City, of a few improv... Tri- are the groundlings, did they die? Did, are they all They're dead? Still around. They made okay. it. They made it. They made it. They survived. Second City, uh, still there? It is. Uh, doing what it does. I'm not sure if you guys, we were talking about like breaking rules or, or like trying to get around the rules. I'm not sure if you're familiar with in the debate world, the competitive debate world, there's something where people like speed read. I was a debater. Okay. For people who aren't, the idea is that if I just list as many facts as I can in two minutes, literally speed reading, then the opponent cannot possibly rebut all of those facts that I said, therefore I win. And I don't know how you feel about this T and how would I insult you, but that seems like it is so against the spirit of, (laughs) of constructive debate. It is clearly a system that had some rules and then people gamed the rules. Like totally. Thank you. What what it is to game a, a system is to play by what's explicitly written. I think, rather than the true spirit. But I think, like, the thing about formal games, like chess, is that's what you do, right? Here are the rules, and you just play by those rules. You ignore that greater spirit. And if you think of debate as just a game, right, then you ask yourself, is it a fun game or not? If you think you're actually trying to teach people how to actually have a constructive dialogue, then you probably don't want to put it in the format of a formal game with explicit rules where you're just trying to... P.S., by the way, one of the papers I've written is about how Twitter is doing this to public discourse by offering a clear, at least game-like goal, which shifts people away from genuine discourse into this weird transforms other thing where you have a clear target, which is likes and retweets. I can see that. We have, uh, these podcasts get sent to several places. One of them is SoundCloud. I don't know that anybody listens to our podcast on SoundCloud, you know, but it's out there. And that has the ability that at any given point, I guess it's maybe Facebook streams are like this, that you can 
kind of like insert a little thumbs up at a particular moment. Maybe we should encourage our audience to all move to SoundCloud (laughs) so that they can say like, oh, that particular joke. I want to, you know, it would give us an applause line, a graph yes. of when things were going well and when they and, were not. And then we could game our show. <laughs> Just so what, ch- chase the algorithm. Just chasing the algorithm. That's all we're one doing. Of, one of the things I found really interesting, so I was on this platform and I was giving a talk. I can't remember what exactly the platform was. And I was giving someone a talk. And of course, like Zoom is really alienating. And they had like thumbs up and heart mechanisms. But that one didn't feel as gamey because they didn't tabulate them. Mm-hmm. You didn't get a total record. Just when people hit them, they would float around your screen. And so you got kind of the equivalent of the audience like nodding along in this weird hostile platform. I really think a lot of the times when you get like metrics that you can just look at and know, oh, this article of mine did five times better than the other one. That's when it really gets under your skin. Oh, yeah. It's hard to not game play the algorithm, chase the algorithm. And it's like, are we creating art? Are we sharing ourselves or are we chasing the algorithm? And in which case we're only as artistic as the algorithm allows us to be. You're, you're actually talking about my research project right now, okay. <laughs> which is, which is basically that for everything and research and communication, basically like algorithms and metrics seeping under our skin and changing what we care about to realign with what institutions can measure. Well, that sucks. <laughs> well, it was something I know in the, during the, the, the came out of the, the Vietnam War, which was we will value what we can measure. So you, they, so the army starts like, well, how much, how effective are we being? Ah, uh, what can we count? Well, we can count, sadly, dead bodies. Well, that must be important. That must be important because it's what we can count. So you end up, you, that's, you have your finger up there, T, and it's like, well, that's horrible that we just, just because we can count it, that makes it important. I am currently in the process of writing a paper with another philosopher, Olafami Taiwo. Uh, it's called Body Count, and it starts with a comparison of the language between Vietnam generals upping body count and pickup artists counting how many scores they get in the bar, and then tries to look at why the history of especially masculinity and American masculinity has gotten tangled up with countable and auditable scores, uh, and we end up on like counting the horns on your deer and the size of your fish before you release them. Yeah. Yeah. How can we tell who's, who, whose deer was better? You know, we both shot a deer. Which one wins? Well, I can't convey to you the struggle I went through in the chase and the, right. the urine trail and da, 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 but I can't count the horns. So that, that must be important. I feel like you've identified a good future topic. We should have your co-host come on and talk <laughs> about quantitative measures of some sort. Not our numbers real. That will not be the topic. Right. <laughs> are they are real? They, is, is the ontological status of numbers connected to the the use overuse of quantitative <laughs> data in evaluation? Probably not. No, I think if you, if you really want, to, I think a mistake when understanding the place of quantification is to look at numbers in general and the countable in general. And the interesting thing is to look about how counting and aggregation works in bureaucracies. Because then you need input mechanisms that are shared between, that are usable by everyone. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's where shit gets real. I mean, the unknown is scary. No one wants to like, well, we're living in this random chaotic, you know, it's not random, but the number of variables is, is so high that it may as well be random. And that's just, no one wants to do that. So to, it's just, it's comforting to know that we can actually put numbers on something. I mean, were you guys like, in, in both those scenes, well, especially that first one, when it was like, you know, professors who, you know, finish other people's thoughts. Was that like scary to read that? Or was it 
reassuring in a regard, you know? You both jumped right in. There was no, like, waiting in the shallow end. You were both ready to go from the word. I mean, the fact that you had that on the list, yes, that's why I picked it, because it seemed way easier than uh, <laughs> a yeah. mothering police officer. I mean, that was, it, there are many oh, great be combinations. We could totally, we could totally knock that Easy out. Easy yeah? cry, hey, repair do, person. Do, do, you know, do you know how fast you were going? Honestly, are you, is everything okay? Are you in a hurry or anything? What do you need? I'm going to have to give you a ticket. We, we, got, we, got, a, we got a whole <laughs> s- semester's worth of uh, episodes right on these lists. Yeah. But yeah, I, I could tell whether Mark was giving me a softball or quietly, you know, needling me. I just thought it was something that I could do. I wasn't even concerned about your well-being. Oh, yeah. For me, it was just like, I was like, okay. I know the two people that are my models for this that, you know, I had to deal with for 20, 10 years. So yeah. I can just be them. It, it, my contribution to the greater world of improv is this notion of like, we already think about each other in terms of behaviors. So as improvisers, we should think about ourselves, our own characters and our partner's characters in terms of behaviors already, you know, because that's, that's the, the, the currency we already use in, in our everyday world. So we, we should be using that same model when we're improvised. I can also say I was very surprised, Bill, that you gave us for a second one a uh, you need to be confused because that's been my default as an improviser in all these episodes <laughs> is uh, because it's so hard to think under pressure. Just be a character who is confused and stupid. And then, you know, that's way easier to do than to actually like leap to the occasion. And <laughs> I, I just, I just <laughs> blurted that list out eight or 10, eight or 10 each. Uh, it was a little, little greater thought. All right. Do you have any recommendations? T, you, you gave us some good articles as we were going. Anything else that you are watching, reading, listening to that seems sort of relevant to what we've been talking about or, or even not that we want to give to the uh, five people who listen to the supporter content? Yeah, actually, and this is especially for you and Bill, too, if you want to look into. I'd be curious on your take with some of these indie RPGs that are aggressively trying to pull in the mechanics of theatrical improv. My favorite and the most famous is probably Apocalypse World. And it's actually interestingly close, Bill, to your view of behaviors, because instead of like normal actions, a normally broad range of actions, it gives you things called moves, and the moves are very specific. So the moves are like, go aggro, seduce someone, manipulate someone, act under fire. And different characters, There's those are general moves, but different characters have different specific moves. Like one of them has a move that's basically called brain fucking, and you basically get, if you touch someone, you get to... Uh, telepathically ask several questions, all of which are about their secret vulnerabilities and horrors. And so like it <laughs> yeah, codifies yeah. a specific set of behaviors. It makes actually it makes it easier for people that aren't like trained in improv the way you are to just be to use look down at this list and you say, what can I do? I can go aggro, I can take something from somebody, or I can brain fuck them. And yeah. it creates this like incredible flavor. The rules sure. just like motivate very specific behaviors that you know, would you consider the game Fiasco to be in that world? Yeah, the game Fiasco is a hundred percent in that world. Okay, I've, pl- I've um, played that, enjoyed that. Yeah, in some ways, it's a little less interesting to me just because it's so close to pure improv. It's like it just seems like slightly structured improv, where games like Apocalypse World seem more like they have so much mechanics that they're trying. They seem more like they're trying to really merge these two sure, sure, different sure. worlds. Sure, but sure, yeah, sure. Fiasco is a hundred percent in this world. Okay, it's one okay. of the great designs. I'll have to see if there's a a podcast of people playing that. In fact, that's kind of what I assumed <laughs> that you meant when you said Tons. there's these mixes of improv and RPGs is 
all the podcasts that are improv people doing RPGs, but I have not heard this particular one, Apocalypse World. I'll have to, to yeah, there, look that up. Yeah, there are a bunch of good podcasts of it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed, um, I feel guilty when I say no and games people play, but I think my, my recommendation for this week, if you want someone who is not chasing the algorithm, and in fact, I think my joke about chasing the algorithm is a show on HBO called Painting with John. Yes. Have you seen it, T? Um, I have it queued up for the most, for a special <laughs> moment, because I loved fishing with John so much. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I think you might agree with me that this is, this is, yeah. this guy being himself, and you either like him or you don't, but there's no, uh, there's no filters. And, uh, well, that's great. I, I, I have not seen fishing, but I have enjoyed painting. Yeah. Actually, let me throw in one more of these role-playing games I'm really interested for you two to play. It's called Microscope RPG, and it's the most, in some ways, it might be more like improv than fiasco. So Microscope is something where three or four people are going to build an alternate history together, and you do it fractally. So you create the general period, and you create like moments, and like the, it might be like, the humans flee from the AI of Earth, and then you create specific, like, the flight of the ship, and you have... And then you call specific scenes, and the scenes often begin with a question, like, why, and you can ask very loaded questions, like, why did the pilot of the ship try to kill herself before they left? And then each of you picks a character, and then you just improv until you come up with an answer to the question, and it just all goes in your history. That's fun. That's fun. It's super interesting. Rather than give a recommendation, I feel like I, you're, you're inspiring me to make a pitch that I want, I want to hear. I want to maybe see a, a digested version, you know, a la the Beatles, uh, giant documentary of a, uh, you know, a 24 hour long game of, uh, TV tag by adults, you know, where you like, you have to sit down and say the name of a TV show. But the, well, where it would get interesting is when we get past the first couple hours and people are really stretching for like obscure things from there, you know, what, what, uh, and you could challenge it like in Scrabble that that's not an actual show that, you know, you'd have to, you could have people prepared for this, this you know, be like the, yeah. the, 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 the hands on a hot car kind of experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an idea there. It's not a good one. You are also making me think that this uh, this uh, struggle play is that what you called it? Stru- uh, striving, striving play. play. So you know, I was bad at sports as a kid, and in gym class, that was socially deadly because it was gym class. And the fact that at a certain point in in middle school or something, I, I decided actually I could have fun failing and laughing at myself. But the the problem there is I was not actually still striving. Like there there was a, there was a it seems like you need agreement among the players to do this you can't have one player deciding not to take it seriously and having having fun laughing at my own inability to make a basket i don't know but that that worked as a socially isolated thing but maybe is not the same phenomena you were pointing out (laughs) yeah i mean a lot of the times i think a lot of it depends on game design like there are not only spirits, but d- games. There are games that are designed. I mean, one thing about games is that you can you can scale them and adjust them to ability. But it's so complex and dependent on like team play. Like an interesting thing about rock climbing is it just scales to your ability. Like however good you are, you find the rock climb that matches, and that's interesting. And one of the neat things for me about games is that unlike the real world, you get to scale it to your ability, and yeah. that's really. Or, or like with chess, you can find someone, an opponent who's your match. Yeah. Yeah, like high school P is just such a weird, bad environment because they like they don't do this. So one of the things we know 
is that some online games like League of Legends are toxic precisely because they don't do a lot of work to get people the same skill level. They just throw people into team-based play. And like basically, if you look at it, the most toxic possible game environment were replicated by our high school PE classes. <laughs> you suck. You suck. Yeah. <laughs> the echo of that. Coming through the years. All right. Well, cool. Let's say goodbye to the supporters and uh, yeah. So long, supporters. Thanks everybody for listening. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.